I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from Long Now Foundation. How's the sound? Are we all right? You know, it's interesting. Talk about the Anthropocene. You're not only seeing a tremendous amount of humanity blasting light up from the surface of the earth there, but who's that looking down on those continents and taking those pictures? Uh, we're everywhere. Um, I'm sometimes referred to as an environmentalist, but when I encounter somebody like Linus, I figure, you know, I'm actually sort of a hobbyist. There was a bit of an environmental sideline with the whole Earth catalog, and I was, yeah, trained in ecology once long ago. Uh, but this is the real deal. This is a guy who's been an activist all his life, uh, wrote one of the best of the climate books fairly early on. Uh, when it was still a subject being raised, six degrees. And um, I think one of the reasons that his country, England, is acting more sensibly these days in relation to climate, taking it on at the scale that it needs to be taken on, one of the reasons that's happening there more than other places is because Mark Linus is getting the word out, getting listened, and getting acted on. Please welcome from Oxford, England, Mark Linus. Well, thank you very much indeed, Stuart, for that. Now, given the occasion, given the audience, given the place, I thought I'd better start with my clock of the long now. So here we are. And what I think is really striking and so easy to forget is just how long the Earth has been a living planet for, 3.7 billion years, so actually the majority of the planet's very existence. And how life has persisted throughout this whole time, despite, a, what is it, 30% heating up of the sun, is testament to the, some kind of miracle of self-regulation, right? Um, that used to be known by drug-crazed hippies like Stuart down there as Gaia, Gaia theory. And um, the polite term to use now in society is Earth system science, so just whisper Gaia, but it's the same thing. Um, and somehow, throughout this whole time, life got itself involved in all of the major cycles of renewal and recycling that make the Earth so different from our neighboring dead planets, Venus and Mars. And so living organisms, the biosphere, actively participates in the cycling of carbon, nitrogen, water, phosphorus, sulfur, and a whole host of other things. And in doing so, somehow maintains the capacity of the biosphere to thereby support life itself and maintain relative stability over these eons, these whole eons of geological time, the long now. Now let's fast forward to a more recent era, the last 100,000 years. Now, we've been around as anatomically modern Homo sapiens for a bit longer than this, and I think our fully modern form really only emerges in the last um, 10,000 years, because this is when we have this huge 
cultural great leap forward of the emergence of civilization, of course. And it's no accident that this happens during the very um, stable temperatures of the Holocene. Because if you see the, the sawtooth roller coaster ride of what went before that during the depths of the last ice age, this is the ice core record. Um, just look how much the Earth's temperature fluctuates. And you, you can't imagine civilization coming into existence on a planet with these rapid swings. In fact, this cold event here uh, was associated probably with the explosion of an enormous volcano and the near wiping out of humanity itself, reducing us to just a thousand or so embattled survivors. Well, we've made a bit of a comeback since then. Um, we're now about, what is it, seven, over seven billion strong. Uh, huge evolutionary success story. In less than half a million years, we've gone from prodding anthills with sticks to building a worldwide digital communications network, which isn't, it's pretty good going, really. So a round of applause for any humans here today. <laughs> no? Yeah, great job, people. Well done. But, but there's a small problem. In doing this and in achieving this evolutionary feat, we've had to capture between a quarter and a third of the entire photosynthetic productive capacity of the planet per year. That's the net primary production. And as byproducts of this, of course, we're raising the temperature of the Earth's system, reducing the alkalinity of the oceans, altering the chemistry of the atmosphere, increasing the albedo of the surface, changing the reflectivity of the planet, and changing the distribution of fresh water, and last but not least, changing the species that share the planet with us over this time. So the Holocene's over, and welcome to the Anthropocene, our very uniquely human geological era. Now, needless to say, this new geological era brings certain dangers, namely that we could cross tipping points, right? Thresholds, if you like, which could tip us into a very different state, an unstable state, a different state from the climatic stability, to name one, that civilizations come about because of. And when Jim Hansen says that if we burn all the fossil fuels, we'll turn this planet into Venus, I don't know whether he's right or wrong, but I don't want to run the risk of finding out. So we know there's likely to be tipping points in many of these different systems, and we want to stay in this safe operating space back from the... We don't know whether this is quantified exactly, so there's a zone of uncertainty. Um, and so taking a reasonably precautionary approach to managing the planet involves trying to do our very best scientifically to understand the possible hardwired boundaries in the Earth's system. And that's what I mean when, we, when I say that, that we're the, the God species. Um, we've got to stay in this safe operating space. And I should say that I'm indebted to Professor Johan Rockstrom and his team of planetary boundary scientists who originally published the paper in Nature in 2009 on which all of this work is, is based. So let's go through them uh, one by one. First off, biodiversity. I put this at the top because I'm a climate person and I, want to, I wanted a bit of a change. But also I think arguably it's the most important boundary and it's probably the most difficult one to manage. We've poisoned, outcompeted, or simply eaten so many other species in their entirety that we now know the Earth's in its greatest mass extinction events for 65 million years since the end of the Cretaceous. And I really don't think you can overstate the urgency of tackling this problem. Every year, the red list of endangered species adds more names to its roster. What is it, a quarter of mammals, a third of amphibians, sixth of birds, quarter of corals, quarter of freshwater fish threatened with extinction currently. And it's not just entire species, it's the 
global abundance of these animals, the, the abundance of vertebrates fell by a third over the last 40 years. So that's a third fewer wild animals sharing the planet with us. Uh, there's more Homo sapiens babies added to the Earth every single day than the entire remaining populations of great apes. Those are the bonobos, the chimpanzees, the orangutans, and the gorillas. So does, I asked the question, does the Anthropocene have to be a, a zero-sum game where it's us or them? And I really don't think it does. And I don't think even morally that this one species of ape, ourselves, has the right to capture so much of the Earth's productivity just for itself. And I think also that science shows that we need to retain the complexity of biodiverse ecosystems if they, continue, if they are to continue to support the biosphere and to support ourselves by implication and to protect the resilience of the Earth as a living system. Hence the proposed boundary, which we've overshot massively, perhaps by 100 times or more. So how do we improve things? Well, I think we've got to in somehow integrate nature into the productive economy. Um, perhaps through payments for ecosystem services. There's many examples of, of how they can work very well. Uh, I think we need to also scale up biodiversity offsets um, so that those who are doing big projects to pay for, can pay for conservation measures of equal value somewhere else. These, these things are all problematic, but there's, there's no easy way to, to get past this boundary. Let's move on to climate change. Of course, we all know that global warming didn't stop in 1998, or didn't stop any more than it stopped in all the previous occasions when global warming stopped, such as in 1973, 1982, 1987, and 1995. Add them all together, and you get this long-term trend in rising temperatures, which, of course, is what everyone's talking about. Interesting as well, if the planet were actually cooling, it would be very problematic to explain thermodynamically how that could even be the case, given that we know the increase in greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and we know that the radiative forcing has increased as a result of that. So you'd have to figure out where all this extra energy, which we know is being trapped in the Earth system, where it's even going. You'd have to be able to explain that. Now, that's not to say that we know everything. We, we don't know how exactly how sensitive the, the Earth system is to increase greenhouse gases. We don't know the precise magnitude of all the various feedbacks. And it's sure as hell true that the computer models projecting future temperatures get things wrong. Uh, I think the most serious error so far is the enormous underestimate of the rate of Arctic sea ice melt. Now, according to people who know their stuff, to save the Arctic ice from complete disappearance, we need a boundary in the atmosphere of 350 parts per million. This was a line which was crossed. If you look down um, at the graph of, this is the Keeling curve, famous graph. So we're, we crossed that boundary in about 1988. Now we're currently at 391, so we're way over this boundary. Uh, 350 in the longer term is probably the bare minimum you need to retain the long-term integrity of the major land-based ice sheets, which are obviously the ones which are important for sea level rise. So there's a lot of nations which depend on this. Um, you probably all know about 350.org, the campaign group. Kudos to them. Um, what this means in terms of a pathway, though, is the entire human economy becoming carbon neutral, essentially, by 2050, and carbon negative thereafter. And I don't think anyone's got a technical, economic, or even political program for how we can achieve that, but we're going to have to throw every single thing that we've got at it. Let's move on to boundary number three. Um, here's an interesting story. At the turn of the 20th century, a whole lot of eminent scientists were seriously alarmed at the prospects of feeding 
um, humanity with the diminishing supply of natural fertilizer which was available to scrape out of the Chilean deserts. So this was at some, in about 1900. But they didn't retreat into Malthusianism and a kind of make peak oil style predictions of imminent doom. Still less come up for, with, with schemes, political schemes for rationing guano or anything like that. Instead, they set themselves a challenge to solve this problem entirely through the application of technology. And to quote William Crookes, who was president of the British Association, said in a very famous speech in 19, and, sorry, 1898, as mouths multiply, food resources dwindle. It is the chemist who must come to the rescue of the threatened communities. It's through the laboratory that starvation may ultimately be turned into plenty. Now imagine how unfashionable it would be to say such things today in environmental circles. A techno fix, how vulgar. But um, William Crookes was right, because within just over a decade from him making that speech, these two gentlemen had indeed solved the problem of nitrate shortage in 1912, um, which is why you know who they are. Can you shout them out? Haber and Bosch. Haber on the left, Bosch on the right. And due to their invention of the synthesizing of atmospheric nitrogen into ammonia, we now have a population which can reach 7 billion. Without it, we'd probably be at 1.5 billion or something. Uh, humans, by the way, are the only species along with rhizobium bacteria that have learned to fix nitrogen, which is quite an interesting thing. Uh, having achieved this ca capacity, we've doubled the terrestrial nitrogen cycle. Um, so we put huge amounts of this nu nutrient into, into watercourses and coastal oceans where it's causing algal blooms, dead zones like in the Gulf of Mexico. In an average year, the Gulf of Mexico dead zones at 20,000 square kilometers. Um, now to protect biodiversity, to protect freshwater ecosystems, we're going to have to, according to the proposal, reduce our amount of consumption from 120 million of nitrogen to tons to, to 35 million. How do we do that? I really have no idea, and I think that's going to be much more challenging. To, you know, carbon is a doddle compared to this because nitrogen is a biological necessity. You can't substitute it for something else. So what, what could we do? Well, we could take a leaf out of William Crookes' book from 1898 and look for a new techno fix which would enable crop plants to either use what we put on the land much more efficiently or even fix their own nitrogen, which only legumes do at the moment. And I'll come back to one way of how we might do that later on. To give you a hint, it's something that greens don't want to swallow. Over that one. All right, land use. So why can't we solve the nitrogen problem just by going organic? Well, because as I said, if we did that, we'd either have to watch more than half the population starve, or we'd have to double the amount of land under cultivation. And land itself is a boundary. Why is that? Well, habitat is the most precious resource for biodiversity. If we give up intensive farming, we might save some oil, but we'd probably have to ply up all the rainforest to keep feeding people. So already the Anthropocene means that 85% of the Earth's surface is fragmented or substantially affected by human activities. So there's, this is what's happened to the old geographical, um, your old geography textbook biomes have turned into the anthromes of the anthropogenic era. I think there's a general principle that if we are to feed 9.5 billion by 2050, we're going to have a serious problem of doing that without going way over the land use boundary, assuming you accept that, 
that figure. Again, we're going to have to throw everything in the toolbox at solving this problem. Um, in biodiversity terms, I think there's a fairly clear general principle coming out of the literature, which is that land sparing is better than land sharing. So you want the smallest possible area devoted to the most intensive possible um, cultivation, and, and really to leave the rest alone, or as far alone as you possibly can. And the places to really focus on, to really protect, are the biodiversity hotspots, which harbor something like half the world's species in just 1.4% of the land area. It's extraordinary, that. Um, I'll conclude this by saying I think one of the dumbest ideas of all is using food crops to make biofuels, and I think there's substantial agreement on this point now. <laughs> Even clearly, clearly from you too, thank you. Uh, and I, I do, I, I feel this very strongly, that it's a moral as well as an ecological outrage that 40% of the U.S. corn crop, which could be spent feeding people, is wasted on ethanol production. And I think it's true to say that tens of millions of people are hungry today because of this pork barrel politics. Now, agriculture needs water as well as land, and globally, 60% of the world's largest 200 or so rivers have been frag fragmented by man-made infrastructure. That's 800,000 dams, large and small. Um, people say we can't do big things rapidly. We've built, I think it's two large dams per day over the last half century. Half of those have been in China alone, by the way. Here in the Colorado, this is the Hoover Dam, of course, you know, I think, I think of this as less of a river than as a sort of semi-natural remaining part of a gigantic plumbing, hydro-engineered hydro plumbing system serving the needs of 30 million people in the southwest United States. But how much of the water reaches the sea along this 1,400-mile river? And not a lot. And that's put paid to a flourishing area of biodiversity down there in the, in the estuary, which is now ruined. But, and of course, humanity overall needs a lot more clean water. A billion people worldwide still lack access to improved water supplies. Um, and actually, people talk about the impacts of climate change. If we were to deliver clean water to the whole of the world's population, most of the deaths which are attributed to climate change now would disappear. That's because they come from, uh, from, from increased bacterial load in slightly warmer, bad water supplies. Now, we've got to share the rivers, though, with the rest of the biosphere. These are the blue arteries of the living planet. And it's no accident the extinction rate for freshwater species is five times higher than terrestrial species in general. Looking at the boundary, um, you know, you can argue, and I think there's some merit in arguing that a quantified global total doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It depends where you take the water from and what the river system has in terms of its own precipitation. But we're well over halfway there for this one. Now, what can we do about it? Well, I think one of the most important things to do is to remove the superfluous dams. And where this has been done in some rivers in the US, I think we should celebrate that. And particularly how rapidly they've flourished back into life, how the fish have returned. I also think we need to accept that, that hydroelectricity as a energy source of energy production is basically maxed out as well for this reason. Um, and also don't forget virtual water. That's why eating locally isn't always the best thing to do, certainly not if you live in Egypt, which imports 5.8 billion cubic meters of water virtually in its wheat imports every single year. That's 10% of equivalent to what the country uses, 10% of what the country uses. So we need to produce food where water is most abundant, does, less, does the least ecological damage, 
Um, and in total, the World Food Trade saves 500 cubic kilometers of virtual water per year by, by this efficiency trade-off, which is a substantial contribution to that, to that boundary, of course. Um, those are all quantified boundaries. They have numbers attached to them, which, which the scientists have proposed as what we humans have to observe in terms of the safe operating space. Aerosols doesn't. This is an unquantified boundary. Um, because literally the behavior of all these different particles from all these different sources and all these different places in the atmosphere is so damn complicated. Um, in using, talking about air pollution, of course, I had to use a picture of China there on the right. In Beijing, they don't announce smoggy days, they announce blue skies days because those are the unusual ones. And it's not just Asia, you know, that's the Asian brown cloud there on the left running up against the Himalayas. When all those particles of soot fall out on the snow, they make it melt faster, and that is aggravating the rate of glacial melt and global warming, of course. Overall, I think it's just been estimated in the UK alone that 30,000 people die early because of atmospheric pollution, 4,000 a year in London. In China, of course, it's a lot more. I think it's true to say if we had a rational or statistical approach to risk, you would evacuate people out of London or Tokyo and move them into the Fukushima exclusion zone. They'd live longer if you did that, like if you believe the statistics. Globally, the aerosol pollution death toll is estimated at 1.5 million people per year. That's a Chernobyl every single hour. So we're going to have to take this pollution out of the atmosphere for simple health reasons. And we will do so, and the Chinese are already cleaning up their coal-fired power stations for this very reason, because people want to be able to see the sky and they want their kids to survive. Now, that's going to give an extra boost to global warming, because most, most of these particles have a cooling effect. So one of the... I'm not saying proposals, but one of the sort of thought experiments I propose in the book is that we could move this pollution, cooling pollution from the troposphere, where people have to breathe it, up into the stratosphere, where it can still cool the planet, but nobody has to breathe it. That's called geoengineering, however, and this, of course, necessarily controversial. We can come back to that if you like. Another unquantified boundary is this idea of toxic pollution. Of course, this was the origin of environmentalism in many ways with Rachel Carson's book. Um, and I think one of the clearest features of the Anthropocene is how we've synthesized novel molecules not seen in nature and which can't be easily degraded by bacteria or whatever in the environment. Um, and the impacts can be catastrophic. There was a case not long ago in India where diclofenac, which I've sometimes taken for a bad back, when it's in cattle carcasses, has killed something like 99.9% .9 of the populations of different vultures there. And possibly it's, an, it's a factor in amphibian declines as well. Also, a lot of these toxics bioaccumulate in the food chain. They end up in the Arctic. Um, one of the newcomers in the Arctic, the old ones are PCBs and mercury, things like that. One of the new ones is cadmium. And you find that in cadmium telluride solar panels, amongst other places. So, you know, people talk about nuclear waste. I think we've got to talk about solar waste as well. You know, we're going to build a new Yucca Mountain for all of the waste that's going to come out of solar panels. That doesn't make any sense. What we have to do is recycle it. And we have to make the same thing for any of these toxics. Um, speaking of nuclear waste, this is where they'd come in, right? If you want to talk about nuclear waste or radio radioactive pollution as a problem, it's going to come in this planetary boundary. And the problem is, though, and I've looked into this quite deeply, that with the exception of the immediate area around Chernobyl, I'm, I've not been able to find any indication of radioactive pollution affecting biodiversity in any meaningful way. And in fact, of course, the Ch Chernobyl exclusion zone, where I have been myself, is, is a, by and large a flourishing wildlife zone. So 
I think it's probably true to say that the, this great unsolved, supposedly unsolved problem of nuclear waste hasn't so far harmed a single living being. And if you know of any case in the scientific literature that says otherwise, tell me and I will stop making that statement. I've made that statement many times and no one's come up with anything so far. Now what about this boundary here, ocean acidification? This is sort of the evil twin of, of climate change, of global warming. We can't fix this with geoengineering. Cooling the planet isn't going to make any difference to the rate at which carbon dioxide dissolves into the oceans. Um, we release, humanity releases a million tons of carbon per hour. Um, we've dug up since the beginning of the Anthropocene, since James Watt invented the steam engine in 1784, we've dug up half a trillion tons of carbon and burnt it. And most of that's gone into the oceans, where via that um, equation there, it has turned them less alkaline and more acidic as a result. So the seas are something like 30% more acidic or less alkaline than at the beginning of the Anthropocene. And if we don't do something to halt this trend, well, we're going to see tropical coral reefs dissolving globally by around mid-century. And the calcareous plankton that are at the basis, the very basis of the marine food chain, are going to disappear gradually as well, turning the oceans gradually from blue to green. This is what's been called elsewhere the rise of slime. Um, by the way, there's a huge amount of geological evidence that high, high periods of CO2 emission in the distant past, many hundreds of millions of years ago, are closely associated with reef gaps in the fossil record. So this is, these are periods when coral reefs cease to exist globally because probably there have been major acidification events in the, in the geological past. And I've looked, I've looked through the geolo geology literature for the last half billion years, for the last 500 million years, and I can't find a single episode which comes anything close to the rate at which we are emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So that's quite an amazing thing to find out. Um, there's a boundary proposed in that which we are running up closely against. Now I want to end the boundaries bit, however, with the solitary and most obvious good news story. Anyone know who that chap is, by the way? He's less well-known than um, Fritz Haber and Karl Bosch, but he shouldn't be. No? He, eh? You got it. I got you. No, I'm going to wait here for another 10 minutes until you come out with it. <laughs> eh? That's not my dad. He comes up elsewhere. Uh, this is Thomas Midgley, loyal servant of the General Motors Corporation back in the 1920s. He's got two inventions to his credit. One is the addition of tetraethyl lead to um, petrol to stop engine knocking. The other was the invention of CFCs. So in the words of John McNeil, who's a historian, Thomas Midgley probably had more impact on the atmosphere than any other single organism in Earth history. <laughs> now, when he invented these, everyone was very grateful because CFCs seemed like a miracle. They're, they're non-reactive, non-combustible, didn't have any of the problems that previous refrigerants had had. But that's only in the troposphere. No one bothered to see what happened in the stratosphere when they get hit by ultraviolet radiation, they split apart, you get free chlorine, and that destroys ozone. By the way, when NASA first spotted this um, ozone hole there, they assumed it was instrumental error, and they spent years deleting the data files, which showed, and you know who discovered it finally, properly? That was the Brits down in their, Halley, in their station in the Antarctic base. So, round of applause for any, any Brits here in the audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, of course, this is our one um, big success story, because we've managed to, through the application of international treaties, through the 
Vienna Convention, then Montreal Protocol, reduce the production of CFCs right down to that, both in developed and developing countries, almost phased it out completely. Um, what are the lessons here? I think there's three really crucial ones. One, it helps if the United States is on the right side. A lot. And believe it or not, this was the Reagan administration that took this forward, and the U.S. Senate was the second in the world to sign this treaty. The U.S. Senate signs treaties, right? Imagine if they'd done this with Kyoto. We'd be in a very different world today. Um, second, the lesson for me is that the process has to be that politicians set the path, that regulation is the beginning, and then business follows. That's the right order. Um, and there's, there's a very persistent myth, by the way, that... DuPont or whoever it was developed or got patents on the substitutes for CFCs and then they gave permission for the, for the politicians to sign their treaty. Actually, it was the other way around. DuPont and many of the other producers phased out their entire substitute programs, technical programs to develop substitutes so that the politicians wouldn't have the option. But they went ahead anyway and they took a leap of faith and that's when business then had to turn around and became a partner for change. Third lesson, te technical substitutes, the techno fix is nothing to be ashamed of. Um, I, I really do believe that if saving the ozone there had meant giving up refrigeration or even giving up hairspray, we'd all be wearing dark glasses today and a lot of sunblock. So, let's look at the future. We've got a big challenge today in the world. We've got to eliminate poverty and bring everyone up to Western levels of consumption by 2050. And we've got to do that within the planetary boundaries, right? Why? Because people across the whole world want and have the right to live lives free from want. Now, I'm going to show you some graphs here of the flip side of the Anthropocene, um, of how fantastic our miracle of human progress and prosperity has been. I'm going to start with this one here. Are you, any of you familiar with these graphs? They're produced by an outfit called Gapminder.org. Yeah? Um, superb, superb. This is Hans Rosling. He's given some TED Talks. Um, and this is about making data come alive. He's got this amazing thing. So here on the left, I've got life expectancy, right? You can see going from 25 up to 80 or so. The year is 1800. These are all the countries. The size of the dot is the size of the population. Um, there's income per person, GDP per capita. And if we, as we run the graph forward, we're going to watch how global development happens. Remember, it's the UK who's in the lead at very back because the UK had the Industrial Revolution first. And you can see how... Life expectancy goes up and down. That's probably because different countries are having wars at different times. Um, if we watch closely now, when these, are, these orange countries are the European countries, watch the First World War. There it goes. Down, it, down everyone goes. Um, watch now in the 1940s. Look at... This is um, China over here. Watch the Great Leap Forward. See, it, that, down it goes. That's when all those people die with that terrible experiment with communism. But in general, you can see how all the clustering moves all of the world's countries up in that, in that general direction. And who is it? Afghanistan today has got a life expectancy of 44. That's the worst. Um, if we rewind the clock back to 1800, who's the worst there? It's the, United, the United Kingdom is the best, by the way, and that's 40. So even the, the, the richest country in 1800 has a worse life expectancy um, than the poorest country does today. And that's not, of course, because everybody lives to this average. It's because of child mortality. Um, so many children didn't survive to see their fifth birthday. Um, 
I'm going to show you one more of these just to show how important this relationship is. That We've only got data from one country in 1800, and that's Sweden. But if we push this forward, I'll make it move a bit faster here. Um, you can see how child mortality is beginning to drop here as countries get richer. And there's quite a strong relationship which really begins to form. You can see that's the US, by the way, in yellow down there. Um, look at all these countries, how they begin to cluster right down there at the bottom. So we've now got child mortality right down at very low levels, three, four, when before it was 300, 400. You know, so by two orders of magnitude, it's really a, a miracle that we've managed to do this. Um, if I make the, this side logarithmic rather than linear, right? So that's 600 there, that's two down here. You can see the relationship a bit more clearly even between, between GDP and the survival of, of children. So this is why I'm a supporter of GDP, because I'm a parent and I've got young kids. And I think every other parent around the world should be able to have their young children survive into adulthood. Um, losing a child, as, as anyone knows, is probably the worst thing that can ever happen in your life. Now, this is where the Malthusians part company from me. Um, Malthusians like to talk about carrying capacity. Um, and I think what's missing from this is the fact that carrying capacity is a moving target. Um, if, if everyone was to, was to live a, the lifestyle of a hunter-gatherer, the Earth can probably support about 100 million people. Right? Um, given the Haber-Bosch revolution, then we could support more than... 3 billion people, 7 billion people, thanks to the industrial, thanks to the Green Revolution, rather, and, and Norman Borlaug. So I want to continue this miracle. So we've got this problem with environmental resource limits, but how can we continue the miracle of human development, the increasing rates of GDP growth for the countries who've so far missed out on the need to reduce infant mortality rates so dramatically? That's the big challenge today. Now, one of the ways that we're doing this is through urbanization. Um, 2008, as you probably know, was a really momentous year because that's when we had more people living in cities than in the countryside. Um, shout out the numbers here. India, 2030, how many cities are we going to see? 68. China, how many are we going to see? 221. Eight, what is it? 180,000 people move to the cities each day. 180,000 people each day. Now, why is that? Because in cities, people get wealthier quicker. They exchange experiences. They exchange ideas. They exchange materials. Cities are engines of innovation, and they're engines of growth. Um, and that's why cities have largely diffused the population bomb, um, if such a thing was ever true. Let's look at fertility changes during urbanization here. One more graph just to prove this case. Um, we're back in 1960 here. There's the US. There's China. There's India, Japan. These are the, these, remember these orange countries are the European ones? There isn't such a strong correlation. There's, there's a sort of a line through it, but it's not that strong. Get stronger, though, as you move time onwards. Countries fall. Look how rapidly China falls with its one-child program. And they're still urbanizing, gradually moving towards the right. So it's almost like a sort of rain of countries, all heading down here towards an urbanized outcome and a relatively low fertility rate. Um, in fact, if you look at this globally, people really don't, uh, uh, don't appreciate how rapidly the, the, the rate of fertility has declined globally. Um, and Hans, Hans Rosling actually did a poll, a live poll at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, where they're supposed to be smart people. And they got it wrong by, they, I think they guessed it was something like 3.5, and it's actually 2.5 today. 
And that's dropped from five children per, per woman in 1960. Um, so in fact, we're now at peak child, right? People talk about peak oil, we're at peak child. We're not going to see any more absolute numbers of children in the world ever. We're at two billion children, the level has stopped growing. What else is important? Um, I mentioned intensification of agriculture before. 13% of the world population is still undernourished. We've got to keep on improving productivity. We've got to keep on the Green Revolution. That means ignoring people like Vandana Shiva, who wrote, and I'm indebted to Stuart for, for finding this, and I captured this from Google Books just to show that it's real. This perhaps the stupidest ever sentence written by somebody who claims to know about biology which is the idea that sterility is going to spread. And this is the whole myth of the terminator gene and a whole bunch of other things, which are still the basis, I find, to most anti-GMO activism. And Norman Borlaug, the father of the Green Revolution, spent the last years of his life campaigning against the technophobia, which is so prevalent in the environmental movement, because he wanted his revolution to continue through the improvement of crop varieties. Look what he says. If the naysayers do manage to stop agricultural biotechnology, they might actually precipitate the famines and the crisis of global biodiversity that they've been predicting for nearly 40 years. Whether you're Paul Ehrlich or whether you're an anti-Monsanto activist, you should listen to what that guy's saying. By the way, one last graph, and this is to show the linkages between agricultural land and food supply to show the increase in productivity and what it does in terms of, you'd expect that as we produce more food, we're going to be using more land. Um, that's partly the case. I've highlighted some of the countries here so you can see the trend over, long, over longer periods of time from 1960s onwards. That's, um, what's that? That's the US. So the US is actually cultivating less land overall to produce vast quantities more food. And the same goes for, that's China. That, that's, is that China or Brazil? That's China down there. Um, look, that's India. So these lines are almost flat as they go from left to right. We're producing huge quantities more food to feed the world's population on almost the same amount of land. And we've done that because of the Green Revolution. So that's why it's been an environmental boon in many, many ways. Now, GM crops, I think, are important to continue this movement forward. They can improve. They can help us with many of the planetary boundaries. They can improve water use efficiency, nitrogen use efficiency, of course, land use. That's going to be important as well. Cultivated on 3 billion acres worldwide so far without a single substantiated case of health or safety impacts. Um, the anti-GMO lobby, who I tangle with quite a lot these days, never tire of repeating this myth that the whole benefit of GM is captured only by these big corporations, including the pantomime villain of, Mon of much as Monsanto. And they've got this idea that farmers are stupid or are being contract into buying these seeds which aren't giving them the yields and aren't producing them and aren't making them money. Actually, it's the opposite, which is the case. $10 billion per year of additional benefit are captured by farmers, primarily in the developing world. 90% of GMO farmers are now in the developing world. And just to put this again in scientific context, if you're anti-GMO, you're on a collision course with both science and development. This is my very strong message. Paul Nurse, president of the Royal Society, the most august um, scientific body in the UK, if not the world, said in his BBC Dimbleby lecture last week, it is not acceptable if we deny the world's poorest access to ways that could help their food security. If that denial is based on fashion and ill-informed opinion rather than good science. Here's one that maybe is less controversial, but is equally important, perhaps. Um, getting clean cook stoves to all of the world's 
poor women who are cooking indoors in highly polluted environments such as this. Um, the climate change impact is going to be beneficial, and that's one way we can pay for it through carbon offsetting, but the levels of toxins in air like this are hundreds of times above World Health Organization standards, and the reason that this is so dangerous is that it kills something like three um, people per minute. That's mostly women and children, 180 per hour, 1.6 million per year. That's what we need to do. We need to pay for these things. Recycling. I'm into recycling because I'm an environmentalist. Um, I think the most important environmental equation in the world is E equals mc squared because it describes how much energy you can get from nuclear fission. Um, breaking chemical bonds, by the way, reduces, um, produces trivial amounts of energy compared to breaking nu nuclear bonds compared to splitting the atom. You can get a million times more energy from a, this size of uranium than you can from this size of coal. Now today, 16% of the world's electricity comes from nuclear. Imagine how much more it would have been had the anti-nuclear movement not mobilized in the 1970s and 1980s and stopped with relentless lawsuits and campaigning activities, stopped that trend towards clean power. Um, and the upshot, of course, is today the world is newly dependent on coal for electricity production, which then results in possibly tens, possibly hundreds of billions of additional tons of CO2 accumulating in the atmosphere than there would have been otherwise. Now, this is bad for the climate, it's bad for ocean acidification, it's bad for toxics, it's bad for nitrogen, it's bad for biodiversity. It's almost every single planetary boundary which is affected negatively by coal use. Now, I'm not saying that all nuclear reactors are perfect. That would be a bit pig-headed after Fukushima, even though that's still a non-fatal accident, by the way. But Fukushima's boiling water reactors were designed in the 1960s. Um, nuclear technology hasn't stood still since then. Here's, I think, the greenest piece of single piece of technology ever designed. This is a sodium-cooled fast reactor, um, one variant of which is the integral fast reactor. I'm a, quite an enthusiast of that. Gee, Hitachi's marketing this as, as a prism. Uh, and this was actually designed by the engineers in um, Argonne National Laboratories to, address, to specifically address many of the problems which were raised by the anti-nuclear activists. Um, so it's got passive safety, it re recycles nuclear waste, um, and it actually could produce enormous quantities of energy simply from burning up the spent fuel stockpiles that we've already got. And this um, Guardian piece, uh, which came out just in February, we did some numbers, and you can get 500 years' worth of clean, carbon-free power from the existing nuclear waste stockpile that the UK's got. In the US, it's um, several six or seven centuries, perhaps even more, simply from burning up uranium-238. Most of the uranium in the current cycle of nuclear reactors is wasted, and that, I think, is an environmental um, shame as well. So we can solve the nuclear waste problem, and we can solve climate change by scaling up fourth-generation nuclear power. Nuclear power, yes, please. International treaties. This is often neglected by people, but if we're going to run the planet successfully as an intelligent species, which we claim to be in our name Homo sapiens, we're going to have to get better at doing these. Um, I spent a lot of time at, at Durban, uh, where all of these people were huddling, for, as a delegate for the Maldives. Um, so I know just how depressing and grueling these kinds of experiences actually are. So I'm under no illusions about how easy it is to do that, but I think we've got to try. There's a biodiversity process, there's a climate process, toxics has been done, or at least addressed. Ozone's been done quite successfully. But what about these other planetary boundaries? How are we going to address them through some kind of international process? There isn't such a thing so far. I think we're going to need one.
Now, let's talk about, what's that? A lot of sleepless nights. Um, everyone here, um, this was about, what was it say, 3 a.m. on 11th of December. I, I can guarantee that almost everyone in that picture had not slept for three nights and had slept very little for the previous week. You know, you, you cannot understand the, the sheer physical, um, um, how, how awful that thing is. I'm so glad that we've had a coup now and I don't have to work for the Maldives anymore. Um, <laughs> It's not every day one's boss gets deposed by a military revolution. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm going to finish up soon. Um, I want to talk, just finish up a bit with a big picture. Um, we've, the challenge here is to use is to recycle everything and to use a lot less at the same time as we grow the economy. We've got to increase GDP overall um, by two or three times in order to solve world poverty. Um, this is my illustration of dematerialization, by the way. There's nothing else on this slide, so I couldn't think of any. <laughs> And um, the root of this is some very basic economics, uh, which I did economics up to A-level, as we call it in England. Um, I don't know what that is, like fifth grade or sixth grade in the US system. But um, anyway, I'm not particularly good at economics, but I do remember that we had this curve called marginal utility, and it levels off. It doesn't go up forever. It's not an um, exponential increase. And what it, what, I, mean, I thought of a reason why this is. If you don't have a fridge and you live in Angola or somewhere, that, that, the, the difference when you get a fridge is between your food rotting and being able to feed yourself for a week or two. Two fridges is better because you can have more food. Three fridges isn't so great. Four fridges, you run out of space in your kitchen and you don't really want the things, you know. That's what happens when marginal utility levels off. And that's actually beginning to happen across the economy in many different ways um, in the developed world. We've seen peak travel already. People simply don't want to travel more kilometers every single year. Um, in the UK, in fact, we've even seen peak material requirement for the whole economy, including imports, and that happened before the recession. So, you know, that's a really extraordinary thing that people don't realize that we can dematerialize the economy at the same time as we can see continuing growth in, even in conventional metrics like, like GDP. Now, um, I want to, if I figure out how to do this, switch back to, um, this is the a reprise, if you like, of the video that you saw at the beginning, although we had this independently. I just had this lying around on my desktop, and I like to show it. And the reason I like to show it is because if you look down at the Earth from space, it's still an extraordinary, extraordinarily beautiful planet, if not more beautiful, because we brought color and we brought life, light to a viewpoint which was without it beforehand, of course. And we're able to see the planet from up there, and that means that the planet knows she's beautiful, in the words of James Lovelock. Um, and I think you can see from these, here we are flying over Egypt. That's the Nile Delta just coming up. I think you can see intuitively by looking at this that we are inherently and indivisibly part of the Earth system. We're so embedded within it. We're as natural as the ant or the polar bear. And what does that mean? Well, it means it's up to us to fix the planet's problems, most of which we've caused. Both of these hands today in the picture belong to us. So that's the god species. Um, to be very specific, that's me there on the left, and that's uh, Stuart Brand down there on the right. <laughs> you, when he said we were as gods, he just meant the two of us. You didn't think it was all of you as well, did you? <laughs> anyway, so it's, it's up to us to determine the temperature of the Earth system in decades to come, the, the chemistry of the atmosphere and the oceans, and we've got to decide how much of living ecosystems to protect in their resilient state. And I want to finish up by saying why I'm fairly unapologetically an optimist. 
Um, and I don't, I don't think I can base this on any great scientific stuff, to be honest. I think it's about faith. Um, and the difference between optimism and pessimism is that optimists believe that we can solve problems by doing new things tomorrow that we can't do today. So we'll have learning, we'll have innovation, we'll have improvement. Pessimists, on the other hand, think that we're going to be more restricted tomorrow, we're going into a more limited, more resource-constrained world, and we're going to be less able to fix problems. Um, I'm actually not a scientist. I'm a historian. Shocking. Um, and I can't say who's right, of course, but looking back through Hans Rosling's graphs, looking at the story of the last 200 years, I think the lessons of history, the weight of history, is with the optimists. Thank you very much. a um, specific question on the integral fast reactors. They're using <coughs> the present nuclear waste, which is stashed in these dry cast containers out behind all of the present reactor sites. Um, but they don't presumably use up all of the stuff in there. So the waste that comes out of the IFR, how bad or good is it? There's two big benefits. One is that you use up potentially 100% of the energy in the uranium, whereas a conventional one-through reactor will use less than 1%. Um, that's because you're, you're fissioning the uranium-238, not just the 235 or not just a portion of that. The second is that what comes out at the end of the process is fission products, which have a radioactive lifetime, so they go back to the radioactivity of the original uranium ore, which came out of the planet's surface, within about two, three, two, three, four, five hundred years, you know. That's not the million-year Yucca Mountain timescale. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we can imagine having a facility which only has to last for 300 years. Uh, you know, there's a lot of buildings where I come from in Oxford which are a hell of a lot longer than that. Uh, I'll give you the question that all of us get. Would you accept a uh, nuclear waste uh, site near where you live in Oxford? Uh, I would not only accept it, I would welcome it. And I would take a leaf out of James Lovelock's book and use the heat to heat the house. Is that, is that a question that someone wrote down? Or do you no, know? no, that's oh, okay. all new in geo form of geothermal. Look at yeah. these long questions. I've never had this before. <laughs> So Alexander Rose says, uh, while the population may peak in 2050, same data suggests it will be back down by 2100 is 7 billion or lower. How are these boundaries affected by a declining population? So the second half of this century and then presumably beyond, when we're not looking at this you know, diminishing rate of increase, but then at an increasing rate of decrease of humans, can we relax about the boundaries at that point or what happens? I'm not accustomed to being asked to worry about declining population. Well, you, you know, start I, right I, now. Yeah, I, it's really I'm interesting because, well, what happens is that you tend to get economic problems. You get a reduction in the rate of innovation. And there's all sorts of reasons why having a declining population isn't a good idea socially and economically. Um, conceptually, if you've got fewer people on the planet, then we've all got more resources, and that's a good thing. But uh, I don't know. This is such a long way off. The population, we don't even know what, what the level's going to be in terms of its peak. So 9.5 billion or so. Mm -hmm. it isn't, I don't think it's going to decline precipitously by into 2100. And what happens post-2100, I really, I would be stupid to. No. I leave that to futurists like you're you to make stupid comments about what's going to happen You're talking about planetary boundaries, and you're only willing to think 100 years, and you're talking to a long-now audience. No, 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 no. I look backwards. 
I'm happy to look backwards four and a half billion years. I'm happy to look forward about four and a half minutes. You know, it's really, <laughs> nothing else is sensible. There's an asymmetry here. John Noble asks, uh, although most geoengineering techniques are controversial, one is important to seriously consider removing CO2 from the atmosphere. Um, there's various ideas about that. What's yeah. your preference? Uh, I don't even call that geoengineering because it's such a no-brainer. Um, and geoengineering in its politically loaded sense now is about doing all sorts of engineering interventions which are going to have a dramatic effect directly on the Earth system, such as solar radiation management. I think carbon capture is just uh, makes, makes so much sense, and we are absolutely going to have to do it. One of the ways we can do that, and I think you've talked about this, is biochar. You, know, you can increase the productivity of, of the Earth's soils by sequestering um, elemental carbon in the form of charcoal. That actually, by the way, affects other boundaries. It retains water, and it increases nitrogen use efficiency. So there's a whole bunch of things that we can do. Uh, and that, that's, a, you know, technically, that's geoengineering, I suppose, because you're sequestering carbon. But we've absolutely got to look at it. How come we keep hearing about how biochar is going to be this great thing? We've been hearing that for 10 or 12 years now. I keep waiting for some data to come in. Wow, it's really working. Yeah. We're so happy. All our marginal land is now really rich and fertile. And yeah, I mean, it, is it a pipe dream? I don't know, but it's being, it, it tends to be a sort of small-scale thing. If it's going to work, it's got to be done in, industrially. We've got to be moving biochar around in the same way we're moving ammonium fertilizer. And I can't see any plan for that yet. Are you looking at uh, the so-called carbon capture from the air? Um, one of the ways that, I mean, there's Klaus Lackner's um, artificial trees. Um, the, I think the economics of that is always going to be problematic, but it seems to be going forward. You've also, we, we've got to have ways to put carbon underground, CO2, uh, using carbon capture and storage, and that's always a diminishing prospect. I mean, it was, it was coal and gas were going to have CCS by about now, according to the prognostications that were made five, ten years ago. So all the eggs were put in that basket. That's one of the reasons why nuclear's got to come strongly back onto the table, because CCS isn't happening. Um, I don't know if it's going to. I think we should put a lot more effort into making it happen, but it's certainly not going to be the, the sort of silver bullet which keeps fossil fuels on the grid and still solves climate change. So the UK is <coughs> doing all these wonderful things. Are they pushing ahead on clean coal? Um, I think there was about five or six projects. There's one of them left. They, they are diminishing. It's just so damn expensive. It costs, it's going to cost billions to have the first scaled up. CCS facility, which actually puts, you know, your, your, convent, your average coal-fired power station produces um, a couple of million tons of CO2 per year. That's a lot that has to go underground. It has to go underground in the right place, in a saline formation or into an old oil field or something. You can't just stick it anywhere under someone's houses. In fact, in, in Germany, um, the Greenpeace did a map of all the places that were proposed for CCS and scared the shit out of everybody. And then CCS is now off the political table. So you can't do nuclear, you can't do CCS. What's Germany going to do? It's going to do more fossil fuels. Did I hear you actually say somewhere in your blog that Greenpeace is now doing more harm than good? I would never say such a thing. <laughs> I mean, Greenpeace does some great work on, on deforestation. They're doing mm -hmm. stuff on palm oil, um, on overfishing. There's a whole bunch of things. I wouldn't like to average it out, having said that, because I think Greenpeace... Um, has really been a menace in many ways. But it's not just Greenpeace. They just represent one aspect of the environmental community. And, mm. and they're, they're, they're less extreme than many of the sort of um, independent activists who confront me all the time and start shouting about Monsanto and things. Um, has anybody pied you? You, you once pied Jorn uh, uh, Lomborg in public at a bookstore. Um, the problem with, the, problem the with, story here is that Jorn yeah. Lomborg uh, came out with a book, The Skeptical Environmentalist. And... Uh, my activist friend here uh, ambushed him at a book signing and, and pied him and, and went off ranting something about uh, climate. Yeah, that's.
probably the most embarrassing video ever, on, on the, and it's on YouTube, and you can still get it. Um, <laughs> I wish I could censor it or something. Um, but the problem is that, and I'm threatened with pying all the time these days, if anyone mm. does it, I really can't complain. You know, I don't have any grounds to say, that's an outrageous physical assault, you know, when I've done the thing myself 15 years ago. You also used to rip don't up... Don't take that as an invitation, anyone. You also... Yeah. <laughs> You also used to rip up uh, genetically engineered plants from research stations. Um, yeah, and that's something else I'm not proud of. Um, but, you know, you live and learn. And, um, I mean, at that time, this was an entirely novel technology, and you could make a plausible case that it wasn't, being, it wasn't well enough understood to put out into the environment. Um, we've now had 10, 15 years later pretty good information that it's not harmful. And in fact, there's all sorts of beneficial applications of, of GM science, which I wasn't aware of at the time. I mean, mm -hmm. I was pretty damn ignorant. You know, I hadn't read a single scientific paper. I didn't know what GM was even about. Um, and, and in fact, what changed me was writing climate change books, which I insisted were strongly scientific and had lots of references in, and then realizing that I'd never read a single paper on biotechnology, nothing in the scientific literature. All I knew was recycled sort of stuff that was coming from NGOs. You have said that comments on your blog actually started to change your mind. Could that um, it possibly was, be true? No, 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 of course not true, no. <laughs> it was, <laughs> no, it was comments actually on The Guardian. I wrote a, you know how... You, you, a newspaper phones you up and you write a recycled piece and it takes 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. You probably, no, no, you never do that. No. Anyway, this, this was the last one I did. Yeah. But you're yeah. hard work. The last, one, last time I ever did that was in 2007, 2008 on The Guardian. Mm. And I think I even remember the title. It's called GM Isn't a Harvest for the World or something. And under that, there were so many comments mm. pointing out that I didn't know what I was talking about. And I've got quite a thick skin, but... It, some, a bit of that filtered through, and I thought, yeah, actually, I don't know what I'm talking about. And <laughs> what will I do? Well, I'll, I'll shut up for a few years. And actually, reading your book was one of the things that I'd, I'd already moved off the fence, and I knew what, that my mind was changing on this, but I didn't want to ever go public, and reading your book gave me the courage to do that. Were you trained as an, yeah. Were you trained as an historian, or is this a, sort of what you are anyway? Um, I did, only to the extent that I did politics and modern history at university. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out where the hell you learned how to change your mind. <laughs> I, I, um, I, I like being wrong because it enables you to find out new stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a really interesting process because you think, wow, there's all these things, you know, and you, you start reading and that's, that's just great. Imagine if you thought the same thing as you thought 25 years ago, like Amory Lovins or someone. It must be really <laughs> de depressing and boring. Um. Here's a question from somebody named January. <laughs> I Sitting next to February and, and March on the road. Anyway, why isn't there a human population boundary? Wouldn't this help avoid overshooting all the others? Um, because population is a, is a driver of our effect on all the different boundaries. So it's not a... It's not a the, the point of the boundaries is that they're defined um, in, a, in an Earth system sense, right? Mm -hmm. So even if humans didn't exist conceptually, then there is still an ocean acidification boundary, which in fact is breached and causes mass extinctions in the geological past because of the rate of CO2 from, in, from volcanoes over a long time. So the point is about what the safe operating space is mm -hmm. and how we use technology, how we use the, the world's resources, what our level of consumption is, is what then drives our impact. Okay, our level of consumption. So you're this great champion for the poor getting out of poverty. There's billions uh, in that situation. India, China, and other places, they are going up the food chain, they want to eat meat. Uh, they want to eat, uh, mm. 
and they're gradually in town and so on getting the resources to do so. They want to use a whole lot more electricity. There's more. We haven't built any new coal-fired plants in the U.S. in years, really. Yeah. Uh, but China and India are building new coal-fired plants all the damn time. So shouldn't we be, I don't know, what do you make of that? You know, it, it sounds like, I hear this a lot, and you must hear it a lot. Well, you know, it isn't just population, it's population that's doing a lot more consuming. Hmm. Uh, that's what, true, what do do it's true, that? it's true, but it's also very simplistic. Okay. Um, it's the type of consuming that matters, and it's the impacts of that type of consuming that matters. And I think the, the part of the equation which is tractable there is technology. Mm -hmm. And this is why I come back to the, if we live like cavemen, you don't have much technology, and if you compare that to your average industrial farmer who produces enough to feed an entire city with one person, you know, that's because of, purely because of the technology and the energy, fossil energy, whatever energy that's coming in as an input into that. And energy is, is probably the most tractable thing that we've got. We can pro produce as much energy as we like using fission, fusion, um, all of the other options that we've got on the table. Um, and we've got to basically substitute energy for some of these planetary boundaries. So we've got to use energy to desalinate water to, in order to capture less from the world's rivers. We've got to use energy to produce more food from a small amount of land and therefore respect the land use boundary. Have you tracked on desalination very much and how it works and what the economies are and so on? Uh, no, I mean, I've seen it in operation in the Maldives because all the, the entire water supply come, on every island comes from desalination. Um, and that's, used, that's done using diesel generators, which is about the worst possible option. Right. And it's actually quite compatible with renewables because you can attach solar farms to desal and you can mm. store the water and it doesn't matter if the sun goes in for a few minutes, whereas it does if you're trying to run a grid the whole time. So it sounds like you're not against uh, renewables, wind and solar. Uh, what no, forms no, no. of it are you fondest of? Um, in the UK context, I'm a big advocate of offshore wind. Mm -hmm. um, we've got a lot, we've got, um, I think it's five or six gigawatts of that now around the shores. And the, what is wrong in this country? Where is your offshore wind? Um, Did being, Bobby Kennedy stop it or whoever it was? Yeah, <laughs> Nantucket Sound looked like a good site, but you know. Um, yeah, but you know, th this, this is like, you know, they say we're the Saudi Arabia of wind, but you know, you've got to develop wind as part of, a, of an integrated grid which can export and import between very large areas due to the intermittency problem. Um, and I think a sensible energy path for the UK involves about 30, 40% wind, 30, 40% nuclear, and a few other bits and pieces. I take it you're not the solar energy uh, Saudi Arabia. I'm a, uh, no, not in the UK. No, I think we could get, you know, I, don't, I think there's a role for PV even in the, even in the UK, mm -hmm. but probably less than 10%. Um, and, and that's if you've got solar panels on every single roof. You know, that's what the Germans are going for. Um, and Is it spent, working for the Germans? Well, they've spent potentially two, three hundred billion going forward in terms of the commitments for the feed-in tariffs. Mm -hmm. um, and they've probably got three percent, I think, of energy, of electricity from solar. So that's about a Fukushima. They get 17 percent, no, sorry, 23 percent of their electricity from nuclear. They used to. But yeah, you don't anymore. <laughs> no, I mean, German, German CO2 emissions have gone up a lot. But remember, the, the, German, um, the European economy is capped by the emissions trading system. So the German emissions can't go up without them having to buy emissions permits from somewhere else. So actually having that regulatory structure has helped. Um, mm. it's, gonna, it's not there in, in, in Japan, and Japan's going to burn it. They're importing huge amounts more LNG um, oil. They even burn liquid oil and coal as well. So the, the alternatives in the short term to nuclear really are only fossil. The argument is over the very long term whether you can do whether you can phase out nuclear and replace it with renewables. But if you do that, you only stand still. And remember, we need to de decarbonize the grid urgently for all these reasons that I've talked about. How about solar in North Africa? Can North, North Africa light up Europe? Um, if, if we want to be very energy insecure, 
mm-hmm. um, in Europe, and I think that's ah. a politically an issue, given that the whole reason to turn off gas is so that the Russians don't hold Europe to ransom. Right. Um, you know, imagine if there's a revolution in Algeria. They don't just they don't have to turn off a tap. They just have to flick a switch, and we could plunge <laughs> Germany into darkness. You know, but it's a problem politically because people are concerned about these things. Um, but I think using very large scale solar thermal, you could get 20% of Europe's electricity probably. But there are problems. You need water. How do you generate thermal electricity in the desert? Um, you know, so there's, there's challenges there. I think it'll be big, but it's it's not easy either. I like North, Af- North Africa and also uh, Australia just because they're mineral deserts and mineral yeah. deserts. Uh, personally, I'm okay with lots and lots of stuff on the landscape. Uh, James Koss has a question. Uh, no deaths from nuclear waste. How about the plutonium scattered around Hanford, Washington? Um, what about it? Where's James Koss? What about? Yeah, tell me about it. Well, I've got kilograms of missing plutonium, a microgram plutonium inhaled gives you lung cancer. Um, it's all over in the dust in that area from the nuclear uh, bombs they were building. Our position, positions for social responsibility have a lot of information on that. Well, not that scientifically valid, I don't think. I mean, positions for social responsibility is Helen Caldicott's thing, and I don't... Having, said, having seen the kind of garbage that they put out, I don't know about this case, and I can't comment about it, but plutonium... Remember, I was talking about this with Stuart earlier on. Remember back... When was it? In the 80s, when... Bernard Cohen challenged Ralph Nader to... He said, I will eat as much plutonium as you'll eat caffeine. You will die and I will survive. Plutonium is not... You can't breathe it. Yeah. You inhale it. One microgram gives you cancer. It's statistically proven. It's very hard to find micrograms of plutonium to inhale. Well, I mean, if you say there's there's dust, plutonium dust floating around this place, that's certainly not a good idea. I'll agree with you there. But I I don't think it's a... You know, it's not a huge driver of biodiversity loss in any place, which is the point I was making. I, I think nuclear radiation and nuclear waste and these things absolutely needs to be properly safeguarded, and it's a health and safety issue for humans. There's no doubt about that. Here's a question from James L. Jim L. Uh, why do you think the opposition to GMOs is so much more widespread in Europe than in the U.S., when the Europeans have an ethical edge on the U.S. usually? Um, I, I, you know, I take a, a, a small measure of personal responsibility for that. I helped start off the anti-GMO movement in the U.K. You started it? Uh, not person. Well, I mean, I was I was probably there in the first one of the first meetings with Greenpeace and everyone else, and we thought we we were outraged wow. about what Monsanto was doing, about the the sheer scariness of this new technology, and we were determined to stop it. This was 90s, 80s, when? About 1995, 95. Yeah, that's right time. And um, and and we succeeded by and large by all sorts of different strategies, putting labeling things in supermarkets, scaring people with Frankenstein foods, mm-hmm. going and digging the things up. Um, and we now have a regulatory environment in Europe which makes it almost impossible. In fact, it makes it impossible to, to mm-hmm. commercialize GMOs. And one of the reasons for that, one of the impacts of that is that only the very biggest corporations can now get in on, get in on this business because it costs 100 million to get through the regulatory process. So, you know, your garage, biotech, or even your public sector research companies can't do this. Roth Amstead down the road um, from me. Roth Amstead is the, one of the greatest agricultural research entities in the world. They've been going, what, 150 years yeah. now or something? Yeah, um, and they're, they're doing public sector <coughs> GMOs. They're doing wheat, which is going to be drought-resistant, um, disease-resistant. There's all sorts of new diseases which are a real problem in a mono, monocultural agricultural situation uh, where there are disease-resistant varieties, which are GM, which you can't take outside the laboratory because it's illegal. But mm. one day, those might need to be put across huge areas in order to save the world from a massive disease outbreak in food crops. Which we're about to have with wheat, with the rust yeah, that came out of Uganda. Yeah. 
Kevin Kelly asks a kind of a general question. Is the stable climate in the Holocene a precedent to civilization or a consequence of civilization, or is there some kind of coevolutionary relationship between a stable climate and civilization? Oh, there's a huge debate about that. Um, I mean, there's some... There's, there's a perspective that suggests that when humans first started doing agriculture, that released more carbon and methane, and that stopped the world slipping, the temperature slipping downwards. Um, I think it's Bill Ruddiman who, who came up with that. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think we can... We don't know what the hypothetical situation, what would have happened otherwise, is going to be. But I, there's got to be co-evolution between the very stable temperatures and the emergence of human civilization. I can't imagine... You know, you look at the, the sheer... Um, I mean, obviously, this is a 100,000-year time scale, but it's very rapid, the changes between... And there are four or five-degree changes on, on, in the global average, which happen in within, probably within decades. So one of the fears that sort of emerged with climate research in the last 15, 20 years is that, as you say, occasionally things happen quickly. Uh, you've been a climate reporter now for quite a while. What are your abrupt climate change uh, fears? Um, I think there's some misnomers about this, right? Okay. You can't get, the planet can't on average gain heat that quickly. You can't mm -hmm. go, you can't have a tipping point and get suddenly four or five degrees warmer in a year or two because the heat's got to come from somewhere. What happens is the distribution of heat within the Earth system changes. And if this is what happens in an El Nino year is that a lot of heat comes out of the Pacific Ocean, is released into the atmosphere. That raises global temperatures and it changes world weather patterns. Um, that's, what's, that's what has been behind some of the abrupt changes before, was the simple reorganization of the system, what winds blow where. And you can see from the Greenland ice core that happens from one year to the next. You know, the entire circulation pattern of the northern, northern hemisphere changes. And it, it scares me a little bit what we're doing to the Arctic sea ice, how rapidly that's disappearing, because that's already probably having an impact. It's making us snowier in the winter in the northern hemisphere, in the higher latitudes. You had um, a damn near a blizzard in London this winter. Um, last, the last two winters were much colder and snowier than... And, you know, it, it makes sense because of the pressure circulation of the, of the lower atmosphere. So there's the, the models are now beginning to explain why this is even happening. So we are reorganizing the atmospheric circulation over a very wide scale by changing the energy balance of the, of the planetary surface. And so these are the kinds of things which I think we need to keep, keep fairly close tabs on. So, you know, you'll get the thing that all climate people get. Okay, we're having uh, weird snow in London. We're having a persistent drought in Texas. Is this climate or is this weather? It's weather. Okay. <laughs> How do we know when it's climate? Uh, when it happens for 30 years in a row. That's interesting. And that changes the average. You're very conservative. Yeah, Stephen Schneider told me 10 years and it starts to be climate. No, 30. 30? Yeah. I like so to be by more the conservative time we, by, by the time we're sure it's too late, that's the situation. Yeah. <sighs> Are you waiting for it to happen? Well, I am actually... You've seen moods come and go on climate. Uh, the, the, you know, the political discourse is all over the place. Yeah. Uh, the climatologists that I know, and probably the ones that you know, are kind of in despair the last few years because they thought that they would get the word out and people would say, gosh, thanks for this information, and we'll now act on it. And rather, they don't act on it, and too, they want to pretend that the information isn't real. Um, what's the state of that? How does... How does how is climate playing out politically? You've been at Durban. You've been in the thick of this stuff. Mm. How do you think climate plays out politically over time? Um, I think we've got to do something new in terms of the politics. 
Something new in terms of politics. I think we need to do something new in terms of the politics. I mean, the, the climate culture wars is just, has got into a state of trench warfare that it's worse than the Somme. It's know? like abortion or something. Yeah. I don't know what, well, I don't know what it is. It's just, I can't see that being tractable. I can't see people sh sh changing sides. Even the scientists are now getting involved in the, in the dirt of, you know, mm -hmm. of, of, of defending the, the, the reality of climate change. Mm -hmm. um, but... We've got, if we're going to solve climate change, we're going to have to take the other side with us in some way, which is why, one of the reasons why I, I like nuclear, because the, the, the skeptics are all pro-nuclear, the Republican mm -hmm. Party is all pro-nuclear, the other side's all pro-climate, and actually doing nuclear would so help solve that problem, and that's probably the only area of convergence I can ever think of. Hmm. Is that working in Britain? It's not working yet, no. <laughs> <laughs> or anywhere else. No. You know, a hope that I keep <coughs> having on some of these techno fixes, GM and nuclear and, and many others coming along, is that there seems to be more action on them in developing countries like China, India, parts of Latin America, parts of Africa, than in the so-called developed countries like Europe and North America. Do you see that? Um, I mean, it's a problem for nuclear that you can't actually build anything in the US or mm -hmm. in Europe anymore, because it right. takes too long to get through the regulatory process. You know in Europe that you can't, even, you can't do GMOs, that's why BASF left. They upped their whole headquarters and moved it to Canada. Mm -hmm. um, because you simply can't, the political environment is not conducive to, regulatory environment is not conducive to doing anything new. You can't do a large scale project. So it's going to be in China, it's going to be in South Korea. I mean, where the first integral fast reactor is going to be, it's not, I doubt it's going to be in America. Mm -hmm. It's going to be in Russia or China or somewhere else where they can do things quickly. Um, and you can still, you know, you're going to get it wrong the first time. You're going to have to improve technologies. You know, it's not that scary. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be absolutely right, spot on first time. Although they did actually um, have a meltdown in one of them, and it was all all right. And early on in the experiment, you know, there's been tons of meltdowns and all these things, and mm -hmm. that's what you learn from, you know. You, you learn from mistakes. Um, and and a, a nuclear meltdown doesn't have to be, or isn't, Armageddon, as we can see from Fukushima. I mean, it's <laughs> one of the good things about these, these, these worst-case scenarios happening is that we can learn from them. We can see what the worst-case scenario is, and rather than it being some kind of unspeakable, shadowy Armageddon-type fear, we can actually quantify very precisely what the impacts of it are. Well, one of the impressive thing to me out of Fukushima, um, three simultaneous meltdowns right next to each other. That's about as worst-case scenario as you can get. So, oh my God, how many people died? And it looks like nobody died. And um, I assume that's because... Well, a lot of people died. 20,000 people died, but not from the meltdowns. Not from and the actually, you see the pictures of the, the tsunami damage and the death tolls, and then a, it's all about nuclear. And I think even at a subconscious level, these things are too, far too intertangled. Because, well, why were there no uh, nuclear deaths? Whereas there were at Chernobyl quite a few. And my sense is that the knowledge is so good on... Um, what acute doses of radiation, what amounts of acute doses of radiation can do to you, that they were able to basically uh, monitor and valve the people going in and out of the reactor sites to work on the, the meltdown, try to cool it down and all the rest of it, and therefore we're not getting anybody overexposed. Well, so you didn't have a, I mean, you didn't have a total failure of containment. In Chernobyl, there was no containment structure, yeah. and, and, and there was a steam explosion, the graphite caught fire, and it burnt for, I think, 10 days, scattering right. radiation absolutely everywhere. Right. Um, so you, there wasn't, you know, there was bits of burning core, you know, for, for hundreds of yards all around the place on the roofs of other buildings. You couldn't get, you know, that's why people died. The operators died. And in, in Fukushima, the operators were terrified for their lives and, 
they were asked by TEPCO who was going to volunteer to, to stay, and everyone put their hands up because that was the kind of solidarity that people had. They knew had, they had to solve this problem. I kind of liked it when the uh, older engineers said, send me. <laughs> yeah. You know, if I get cancer in 30 years, so what? I'll have yeah. died of something else 20 years before that. Yeah. Uh, nice use of old people, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> you going to join the queue? Absolutely. Yeah. Send me. Oh, God. Yeah, but I mean, even, uh, you know, we, we know fairly precisely what the doses are that even the most heavily exposed workers got. Um, and it's, it's well below any kind of health impact which is visible now. Mm -hmm. um, statistically, they will have a small increase probably in the, in the chances of them developing cancer. But even if you look back at the Chernobyl liquidators, so the mm. several hundred thousand people who, who helped clear up, shoveling up the mess, and got very heavy doses, there's still no evidence of increased cancer. And so the evidence is probably going to be so small that you'll never be able to see it. And that's the case for the general public as well. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I wouldn't say that the increase isn't going to be there because we simply don't know. But mm. if you can never see it, there's a lot of other things which happen which are worse. Right? People, statistically, more people die in automobile accidents from air pollution, like I said earlier on. We've got to address risk in a proportionate way across all of the different areas where it comes up. So you're, <clears throat> you've been living in London some of the time, which is this dangerous place, as you explained. And no, now Ox you're Oxford. Oxford's way worse. Oh, <laughs> and now you're off to uh, the uh, Fukushima exclusion zone. Uh, is this, you're going in there for your health? Um, I, you know, when I was in Chernobyl, mm -hmm. Um, I probably picked up a bit of a dose, mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm, I'm unconcerned enough about it to go and to go and be there. Yeah, um, I would. I, I don't think you're allowed into most of the um, exclusion zone, but it's just it's a funny thing that it's so psychosomatic. Uh, I was told a story mm -hmm. by one of the UN workers who was doing the helping with the original reports on Chernobyl, and um, he he was he was in the zone for sort of two or three days, and he had this awful leaden feeling in his bones and he could hardly move and you know mm. they thought my god what's happened to him it's got to be something and, and actually what had happened is he hadn't had a proper coffee for three days he was, he was having a caffeine withdrawal because the ukrainian coffee is just such crap stuff you know <laughs> <laughs> so uh Pripyat and, and chernobyl are becoming a uh, a tourist attraction you've you've been one there and i've seen photographs now of lots of people there you know, doing stuff yeah. And uh, you approve of that, I take it. Uh, well, I don't know, approve or disapprove, but Pripyat blew my mind. I mean, you, you, this, this place is frozen in time in April 1986. Hmm. They were about to do the May Day Parade, which happened on May the 1st, and they've got all these huge portraits of the Soviet, various Soviet leaders in the Politburo all stacked up behind this gymnasium. The gymnasium next door has got a tree growing through the floor. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's wildlife everywhere. The kindergartens were, you know, there's school books left all over the place. They've got a big Stalin, Lenin worship corner, you know. Mm -hmm. Where else in, in the former Soviet Union can you see this stuff? It's all been taken down. Um, and yet people can walk in, that people are spraying graffiti on it, people are damaging it now. I think this, this needs to be a World Heritage Site. UNESCO should get involved and preserve this because it's such an extraordinary place. That's a nice approach. So when GMOs go amateur, which I've been proclaiming for a while because everything else biotech is going amateur pretty quickly, and in their garden sheds at the bottom of the garden in England, people are making cabbages that blow your mind. Uh, <laughs> and, and do not ask permission of uh, Syngenta or any of the other, uh, what do they call them, gene giants. Um, are you worried about that? Um, I'm more worried than I would be about any other kind of um, genetic interference in crops. I mean, mm -hmm. 
in the old days, they used to blast them with radiation and in induce all sorts of mutations and Still just see what happened. That's right. how we breed them. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you're, you're messing with a whole, a whole lot of the genome doing that. At least GM tends to be much more precise in terms of you stick the particular gene that you want in the particular place you want it to go, and then it has that expression. Um, so I don't think GM... You don't mind eating cabbage that glows in the dark? Because <laughs> there's a little bit of jellyfish in there. Nope. In fact, um, when I was in Oregon um, just last week... Um, I went up with Steve Strauss from the forestry department and saw his GM poplars. And friends of mine were in, instrumental in destroying his colleague's test site in the UK. And they destroyed that man's life, life's work. Uh, and what did you say to him? Um, I, I, I was actually, for once in my life, almost speechless. Almost. He invited you there, I take it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was doing a talk for him. And, um, but, you know, these look like normal trees to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Of course, they're, uh, you may know, loose in China. They have a lot of uh, BT poplars, English poplars, bless your heart, mm. uh, scattered all over China. And um, they are presumably sharing their genes uh, with the natural poplars such as they are there. Well, they will. I mean, they will if it's an evolutionary, if there's a selective advantage. Mm -hmm. If there's some selective advantage, in, then, then genes may flow. I mean, poplar, I think, is windblown pollen, and it goes for a long mm -hmm. way. In fact, what Steve's doing is... Um, um, Tr trying to develop sterile varieties, which will only be cloned then, because then you don't have any gene flow. And Terminator problem. poplars? Yeah. Uh-oh. Exactly. That was, that was designed, of course, to address the problem of gene flow and to say, well, you can have an organic field right next to it and there won't mm. be any contamination and it's not a problem. Then it became this great big thing where you were trying to wipe out the world's population. But, you know, that, that comes, from, it comes from misunderstanding. Um, and the biggest misunderstanding of all is that genes will only transfer if there's selective advantage in them doing so. Right. And most of what we do in GM is simply applicable in the very domesticated environment. You know, these are, these are useless, pathetic plants mm -hmm. unless we're farming them. They're not going to go anywhere. I mean, herbicide tolerance is no advantage unless you're being sprayed with herbicide. These super weeds aren't going to take over the, the, late, the woodland next door, are they? Um, no, they're, they're specialized at the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Though they are going along the highways, which also use uh, herbicides. So, you know, Okay, what were environmentalists right about all along and still are? Let's finish with that. What, you're, you're still a green, I'm still a green. Uh, we've flipped on a couple of things, but not on a couple of things. Yeah, I mean, the, the planetary boundaries is a very environmentalist narrative. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why I find it attractive, because it's talking about protecting the living, resilient quality of the biosphere for as long as we possibly can from bad human interventions, right? We know what we can figure out using the planetary boundaries, what interventions make sense and which ones don't. So all the boundaries that article and its many authors and now you spoke about are all boundaries that are being pushed by human activities, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Are there boundaries that uh, may come to pass anyway that are not pushed by human activities, but we may want to take some ameliorative uh, action on? And we we well, seem to like this stable You mean climate. like an impact of a meteorite or something like that? I mean, who knows? Well, that comes to mind. Yeah. Um, who knows? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a planetary boundaries 1.0, so there's going to be a 2 and a 3 and a 3.4, and, you know, it's going to... It's going to be a work in progress, and there's all sorts of ways in which you can, you can criticize the, the basis of it, even from, you know, particularly from a scientific perspective. So I don't think it's, it's perfect and it's set in stone by any stretch of the imagination, but it's just really useful. If you want to say, what do I think about X, Y, and Z, structured along the planetary boundaries, and I think you'll come up with a more environmental 
type result than you would have done otherwise. Okay, here's a fundamental problem. Uh, politics often runs on a, a nice clear story, a political agenda, uh, which one then sort of swears a certain allegiance to and sticks by and hangs with and is loyal to century, you know, anyway, year after year, decade after decade. And that's how you get political action, is by a mm. lot of people agreeing and moving as one in a certain direction. You want this kind of science-based environmental activity, it's not going to be a movement because science is just this big long argument. No, I, which keeps changing. New data comes in, yeah. you know, they change the models, and uh, what's a true believer supposed to do with that? Um, if I could ask for something, I would ask for a slightly more rational environmentalism, right? I don't think environmentalism has got everything wrong in terms of the, you know, what people feel and the passions that people feel about protecting the planet. I think those are absolutely spot on. Mm -hmm. But you don't do that by taking a position which is completely the opposite of what, all, what pretty much all scientists are saying. And so it's got to be empirical, it's got to be evidence-based, it's got to be modern, for want of a better way of putting it. That means it's, it's got to keep changing. It's got to Is keep changing. You can't have a fixed ideology, otherwise you turn into Al-Qaeda. Thank you for coming. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.